Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. We're looking at our series on the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. And just before we continue with that, as we're kind of breaking down all the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, there's a lot to unpack here. I want to get back to one of the main points before we continue on that Jesus wanted to emphasize when bringing up this prayer, when presenting this prayer to his disciples. And as it's often been called, the disciples' prayer. It's it's not really a prayer that Jesus can fully pray himself. Forgive us our trespasses, for example, because he is sinless. But nonetheless, he wanted to guard against hypocrisy among his followers. That is something that Jesus just could not abide by. So if you look in Matthew, and of course, there are two places in the Gospels where the Lord's Prayer is brought forth. Uh, Luke chapter 11, and that's a much shorter version. I'm going to get into why in a couple of minutes. But of course, in Matthew chapter 6, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the other place in the New Testament where the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, uh, is given. And it is a little bit longer. It's a little bit different. It's also in an early Christian document called the Didache, uh, which is also known as the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. That's what the word Didache means. It's a very well-known document in the early church. Didn't make it into the Bible, but it's certainly pretty solid and pretty orthodox. So it's in there as well. But really, this is all in the context of avoiding hypocrisy. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 and following, he says, And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven. So then he gives the the Lord's Prayer after that. But all that setup that Jesus gives is very, very important. We really shouldn't overlook that. So, this is he mentions hypocrisy a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. And so this this idea of hypocrites who love to pray in public places so that they might be seen by others. I mean, really what they want, what they're looking for, is they don't just want to be seen by others, they want other people to admire them. Oh, look how pious this person is. Look how holy they are. Listen to them pray. Wow. They must have a direct hotline to God. I wish I could be like them. Well, Jesus is basically saying, if this is what they're looking for, human applause, then they've got it. I mean, they're going to get it. But that's not the reward that you should be seeking. You should be seeking the applause of heaven, the applause of one, God alone. Now, obviously in Luke chapter 18, there's that famous uh, tale that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. What is the Pharisee doing there? He's praying as he's standing. He's standing there. He's in public. And in fact, there's a famous Jewish prayer that's it's actually called the standing. It was it was prayed standing up. It's called the Amidah. And so this is the famous prayer that has 18 benedictions. You might have heard about this. 
But really, I think what's ultimately in Jesus's mind here is this concept of being an actor, having a false piety. That's really what the word hypocrite really means. We've talked about this. The word hypocrite really was quite innocuous. It didn't have a negative meaning in Jesus's time. It simply meant an actor on stage. But because Jesus uses this to excoriate the false piety of so many around him, and of course it still exists today, it's taken on this negative connotation. If you call somebody hypocrite, they're not going to see it as a compliment. And again, there was a a city called Sepphoris, which was a very, very short walk, just a few miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. It was a big city, and it had a big Greek theater, a public theater, and it was being built really while Jesus was in his formative years, it's quite possible that he and Joseph actually worked on the construction of that theater. You'll never know. I guess we'll find out in heaven. But this could be where Jesus got this concept of play acting in religion. The hypocrite, the actor, would very often stand on stage and give a soliloquy. And also, it could mean that uh, outside of the theater on the street, and there are very, very famous colonnaded streets, which are still there today, if you go to Sepphoris in the Holy Land, and you can see these great big Greek columns, these these paved streets. And very often, someone would come out almost like a town crier and, and just promote the play that was happening at the theater that day, trying to get an audience to come to the play. And so Jesus says, don't be like that when you pray. You've got to go into your room and shut the door and pray. Private prayer. Daniel did this very recently on the Faith Explained program. We went through the book of Daniel, and Daniel went into his room in Daniel chapter 6 and shut the door and prayed. And so, the point of this is that you're humbling yourself before God. No matter whether you're praying in public or praying in private, God sees you no matter what. So he's going to reward you for how you really are when no one's looking. And that's, that's the real you. It's not the, the you that you post about on social media, the sanitized version of yourself. God sees the real you, warts and all. And this is, the, this is what we should reveal to him when we go to the confessional. Uh, we can't fool him at any rate. But God will reward us uh, for that humble and sincere prayer. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 20, it says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. It's this concept of praying alone in secret. Now, there's something else about prayer that's a kind of a backdrop to the Our Father, to the Lord's Prayer, which is not just a prayer that we should pray verbally. It's a vocal prayer that we say, especially when we pray the rosary, but also It's a model for prayer. It's kind of a template for all prayer. And one of the things that Jesus says is that, look, he says, when you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. And uh, my professor, Dr. Craig Evans, used to say that uh, when it comes to this, you know, it's possible that Jesus has in mind that famous showdown between the prophets of Baal, and Baal was a false god that was worshipped in the Old Testament time, the false prophets of the false god Baal, and the showdown that they had with the true prophet of the one living God, the prophet Elijah. And you can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 18. 
So remember, they had this kind of contest. And the prophets of Baal, all day long, they would cry out to their God. And Baal, not once did he respond to their pleas. And I guess they thought that, hey, maybe if they make more and more noise, repeat themselves, you know, the more they repeat themselves, at some point we're going to get through to him. It says that, quote, they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon and no answer. And they raved on, but there was no voice, end of quote. So they, they just kept at it. And I guess the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, even though it's not working in the hopes that it will. Well, Elijah is standing there and he, he's just kind of laughing and, and he, he makes fun of them. He makes sport of them. He says, okay, keep going, guys. Maybe you should cry a little louder. Surely he is a god, right? Either he's meditating or maybe he's wandered away. He's gone out for a walk. Maybe he's on a trip. He's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. Yeah, yell louder. You might wake him up. So it is kind of a comedy and, and it suits a little bit the, the background of theater uh, that Jesus brings up here when he's teaching about prayer. Prayer should not be theater. And of course, what happens is the true and living God answers Elijah's prayers. He actually even soaks the sacrifice in, in water, just drenches it, but God sends fire from heaven uh, to burn it up. And so what a powerful demonstration of the power of the one true and living God. The other thing too is that when Jesus is talking about the, this way that the pagans pray, and he would kind of lump in these false worshipers of Baal or any false god with the pagans, Here's the thing. They actually have a pretty low view of God. They don't think much of God at the end of the day. Because what, what, what are they trying to do? They're trying to somehow, the more I, if I just bug him enough, he'll answer my prayer. If I just uh, yell louder, he'll answer my prayer. And so this is not a, a really great theology. And Christians should never, should never fall prey to this. Because it's as ridiculous as what the prophets of Baal did, trying to grab God's attention. It's a very low view of God at the end of the day. And in fact, uh, in the time of Jesus, archaeologists have found from, from Jesus' day, a lot of pagan prayers, a lot of charms, amulets, incantations that have been unearthed. And one thing that you find in common with these things is that they will, now most of the pagans believed in many gods. Think about uh, the Greeks who had Zeus and all the heroes of Mount Olympus, you know, Ares, uh, Aphrodite, Venus, you know, they're, 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 there's just so many of them. And so what you find in these incantations is that there's almost a laundry list, as long as your arm, of all the different gods that they would pray to. And, and it's almost as like, as if they're saying, hey, I, I want to get everybody on this list. I'm going to invoke all the pagan gods just in case <laughs> I've missed somebody. I've missed that one small g god that might actually answer my prayer. I don't want to overlook anybody. Uh, this is ridiculous. And so Jesus says, when it comes to the one true and living God, you don't have to try to get his attention. God 
can hear you. It's not that he can't hear you. You don't have to yell louder. You don't have to say it a thousand times, your prayer request. And it's not that he doesn't care. He certainly does. St. Peter, writing in the New Testament, he says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. He really does. He does hear. He does care. St. Jose Maria Escrivá, the founder of Opus Dei, he said, God loves each one of you more than all the mothers in the world love their children put together. It's unfathomable and much, much more than that even. So don't think that God can't hear you. I once saw a poster in the office of a, of a youth minister in, in a parish and it said something to this effect. Hey, when you pray, you don't have to keep repeating it. He heard you the first time, dummy. And that's, yes, I guess there are times when we we might bring the same prayer request to God time and time again. But understand that he does hear you. He got it. He got it. And he has already set the response in motion to that prayer request. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. All right, so... Jesus says, don't be like this. These pagans who have this laundry list of deities that they pray to, they don't want to miss any. Reminds me of St. Paul when he went to Athens, and this is in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17. And he was just gutted, literally gutted, by all the paganism that he came across. And in fact, the Greek text of Acts 17 says that it made Paul basically sick to his stomach, you know, and his soul inside. He was just... He couldn't believe that they they had so many pagan deities that they were worshiping. They even had an altar, it says, to an unknown god, just in case they missed one. And and St. Paul very brilliantly uses that as a jumping off point to preach the gospel to them. He says, what you up to this point have worshiped as unknown, I'm going to reveal to you. I'm going to tell you who the unknown god is. It's the god of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he is the only true God, the one true and living God. And he starts preaching about the resurrection. It's a great, great example of contextual communication of the gospel, of missionary evangelism in a way that they could understand and grasp. Not that he was 100% successful. The, The crowd was basically broken up into thirds. Third of the people laughed at Paul and said, this guy's spouting nonsense. Uh, another third said, oh, that's very interesting. We want to hear you again about this. You know, they're kind of, okay, first exposure to this. Let me think about this. Let me come back. That's not necessarily a bad place to be. People do need time sometimes to process. And then there's another group that believed right away. They were given the gift of faith. They bought into it. Uh, people like Damaris, and there are some other women, some other uh, people in the uh, in the Areopagus at Athens, where people would just kind of gathered to hear the latest ideas. It was like the, I guess, the Twitter of its time uh, in real life. And they believed, and they became part of the church. And so we want to avoid that, that kind of thinking. We know that there is only one true and living God, but he is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He does hear us. He's everywhere. He's all around us. Heaven is all around us. We talked about that in the last episode. And that's why Jesus says, Uh, In verse 8 of Matthew chapter 6, do not be like the pagans, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't need to keep saying your requests again and again and again and again, because in a sense, it's kind of insulting to God. It's a low view of God. He does hear, he knows. In fact, 
Jesus says that God knows what you need even before you ask him. Okay, so this begs another question. This begs another question. Okay, if God knows what we need even before we pray, what's the point in praying at all? That's a serious question. A lot of people ask that. Why bother praying at all? Well, here's what Craig Evans says. He says, we need to kind of respond to this just as a rabbi would, right? Rabbis were very famous for answering a question with another question. In fact, Jesus did this too. When he was asked, you know, during his ministry, by what authority are you doing these things? He says, well, I'm going to ask you a question. If you answer me, then I'll tell you what what authority I'm doing these things. So that's that's something we can use as well. When somebody asks us a question, we we don't necessarily have to answer it. We can just give them another question. Hey, I'll answer it if you answer me this, you know. But, But Jesus says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? You know, was it of divine origin or human origin? He's talking about John the Baptist. And they, they kind of know, Jesus' uh, questioners kind of know that he, he's trapped them. Because if they say, well, John's baptism was from men, it was of human origin, the people would probably attack them because they all thought John was a prophet. But if we say, it was, oh, it was from God, Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe him? <laughs> because they didn't. You know, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, they did believe John, many of them, and they repented. Uh, But these guys didn't, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. How about that? So anyways, a very common rabbinical play the rabbis would often teach by asking questions. So if someone says to you, hey, why bother praying? If God knows what his children need before they ask, why bother praying? So here's a question you can ask in return. And it's it's a humorous story about Rabbi Shlomo. Rabbi Shlomo, the famous rabbi, one of his students asked him, hey, Rabbi, why do you always answer a question with another question? Rabbi Shlomo said, does this bother you? So that was kind of funny. But anyway, so when someone asks you this, why bother praying if God already knows what you need? Here's how you can respond. You can ask that person, well, why on earth would you pray to a God who didn't know what you needed before you asked him. You turn to God in prayer. You pray and you ask him, even though he knows what you need, because he already knows. We know he's going to respond. We, we have confidence in him. Why on earth would we pray to a God who did not know what we needed? That wouldn't be much of a God. Oh, oh, wow. Thanks for telling me this. I, I didn't know you were in this situation. Oh, my goodness. It's a good thing you you told me. No, God knows everything. So, so again, we have to have a very high view of God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. But we pray because we know that he's powerful. He knows our needs, and and, and he he wants us to have— Part of it is to build up our confidence in him because he's going to answer those prayers. And another part of it is—by the way, that's, that's a really good reason to keep a prayer journal if you're not in the habit of doing that. Because sometimes we forget what we've prayed for. And when we get the answer, we think it's no big deal. Because, we, oh, I forgot I even prayed about that. So it's, it's a nice thing to do sometimes to, to write your prayers out, have maybe a little prayer journal. What are you thinking about? What are you praying about? Because you can look back on it and, and really it can be a great faith-building experience. Oh, my goodness, God answered that prayer. He did. This is a, this is a faith builder for me. Another reason that we need to pray 
even though God knows our needs already, is just communing with him. It's just being with him. Again, like we talked about in the last episode, Jesus chose the apostles to be with him. Jesus did this himself. He communed with his heavenly father. He would get away from the crowds. He would try to be alone with his heavenly father to get that that community, that, that, that love, that, that direction that he needed. And very often, if you read Mark chapter 1, even at the beginning of his ministry, so many people with needs, it just never ended. The people that were not only stuck with various diseases, but they were infested with demons. The whole, the whole town comes to Peter's house. Uh, they're outside the door. They're all over the place looking for healings. Well, in the morning, Jesus heals them all, does all these exorcisms. In the morning, very, very early in the morning, he goes out to a solitary place and he prays. It actually says that Simon Peter, Simon and his companions hunted for him. This Greek term, they hunted for him. They had to, wow, it was like, he was pretty hard to find. It wasn't that obvious because he really wanted to get away. He really wanted to be alone with his heavenly father. And guess what happens? They come to him, they find Jesus, and they say, everyone is looking for you. And he says, well, sorry, guys, we've got to move on to the next town because I've got to preach the gospel there. I've got to preach the gospel all over Galilee, in all the synagogues, in all the villages, in all the towns, because that is why I was sent, to preach the message. And so he got he was getting that direction. He was constantly in communication with his Heavenly Father. And so he didn't get off track from his mission. And so we've got to do the same thing. We've got to do the same thing. Yes, the healings and the exorcisms are, are good, but they're basically proof of the message, the truth of the message about the kingdom of God. Everyone who got, who got healed was going to get sick again one day and die. Everyone who was, uh, uh, had a demon cast out of them, God forbid that ever happened again, but they were going to die at some point. So what's most important is getting that eternal security for your soul, getting right with God, being in a state of grace. Even Lazarus, who he raised from death, he didn't resurrect him. He'd still be alive today if he were resurrected. He was simply resuscitated, brought back to life. Even Lazarus had to die again. So we've got to make the spiritual number one. The physical is important. God made us body and soul. He's going to resurrect our bodies as well. But in order for that to happen, we have to die in a state of grace. So let's keep going here. One of the things Jesus says at the beginning is pray in this way. And that, that's how he kind of introduces the Our Father in verse 9. This is how you're supposed to pray. Now, we've kind of gone through the first couple of petitions in the Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We started talking about that last time. just want to mention to you that there is another version of the Our Father in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 11. Now, it's, it's much shorter. If you were to look that up, you'd say, wow. And, and here's what it says. It says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us and do not bring us to the time of trial. So it's a lot shorter than Matthew's version, which, which says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the the ending part of the Lord's Prayer. I might have to leave that for next time. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever. That's called the doxology. 
Um, it's in the it's in the version of the Lord's Prayer that's in the Didache. I'm going to tell you where that comes from in just a minute. But one thing that you might not know is that Jesus taught the same thing in various settings and various situations. So the message that he preached about the kingdom of God, which obviously included how to pray the Lord's Prayer, he probably taught that on many different occasions in many different places. So he might have summarized it a little bit here and there, expanded on it in other places, but it's the same message, okay? Jesus, by the way, the Lord's Prayer, it's not original to him. This is something that might surprise you. Jesus's version of it is different, but it's actually based on the whole Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, is based on an ancient Jewish prayer known as the Kaddish. The Kaddish. Now, what does the Kaddish mean? The word Kaddish means hallowed or let be sanctified. Okay, so think about hallowed be your name. So here is the Kaddish prayer. I'm going to give it to you. It's really short. May his great name be glorified and hallowed in the world that he created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and during your days and during the lifetime of the whole house of Israel, speedily and soon, and say, Amen. Okay, so that's it. Just two petitions there, but you see a lot of common words. May his great name be glorified and hallowed. Ah, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime during your days. Your kingdom come, right? So you see it there. And may it happen soon and speedily. So this is really the, the something that already existed, but Jesus' version is much different. He expands upon it, and he changes a few things for sure. The big difference here, besides how long it is, is that in the Kaddish, it's kind of in the third person. You know, may God do this. May he bring about his kingdom. Whereas in the Lord's Prayer, in the Our Father, it's all in the second person. Jesus is teaching us that we are direct sons and daughters of God, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom. So it's a child talking to the Heavenly Father. This is a really, really important distinction to make. So this divine filiation, as it were, the fact that we are sons and daughters of the Father, is something that we really have to allow to transform our hearts and our minds. And Peter Crave said that really one of the clearest proofs of the existence of original sin, how, how abnormal the world actually is, it's not the way it should be, is because it's really hard for us to praise God and to, and to pray. Uh, the Catechism, for example, it talks about the battle of prayer in the section on prayer. It says the prayer is a battle, and it certainly is. God could not have made us this way because prayer and praise, worship of God, should be to us just as our natural habitat, like a, a fish in water. It should be so easy and natural for us to turn to our Father, but it's difficult for us to do that because of the fact that sin is in the world. So we've got to really allow our minds to be transformed, like St. Paul writes about in the New Testament. That's all the time we have for today, but if you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com, or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at 
Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio. And I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. God bless.